Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I am Bill Arnold, according to my name badge, and I'm awfully glad to have once again on the program uh, Jay Warner Wallace. Jim is an amazing apologist. He's a theologian. He is an author, and he is a person that points us to Jesus, and I love that. His new book, uh, Person of Interest, has been out for a little while, but right now there is an amazing deal going on right now. You can pick it up at Amazon.com in the Kindle division for three ninety nine, and it's uh, an amazing book. I went through it, and it is a... Not a light read, but boy, is it a great read, and you will learn a ton. So head over to Amazon.com or anywhere you buy books and pick up the Kindle version of Person of Interest. You will absolutely love it. He's a uh, featured cold case homicide detective. You know Jim from past. He's on the show regularly. He's not only one of the most popular national speakers out there, but he's a best-selling author and continues uh, to consult cold case investigations while he serves as a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. He's also an adjunct professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology. I can go on and on, but that's enough. Jim, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Yes, please stop. Yeah, as if I think as you get older, too, you realize how unimportant you are. Oh, absolutely. You realize right. how. I mean, that's what God does. Is He's He's helping us to see that uh, there's a lot more out there than we think. We, you know, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. So yeah, yeah. So that's been my experience. Anyway. Well, I go to your website all the time, coldcasechristianity.com. I recommend everyone to do it because you're going to learn a lot. But you've recently had some writings, and you have something called Rapid Response, which I think are great. And anyone who's interested in sharpening up their uh, faith um, sharing skills, uh, it's a great place to go. But one of the uh, things you address is, what does it mean to be a two-decision Christian? And I would, I'd love for you to give us your rapid response. Yeah, well, I mean, I think this is one of the things that you—how you, many times have you, have you met people uh, who identify as Christians— Yet they, um, when you start to really drill down on what we believe, you're going, wow, you know, to be honest, they don't seem like they hold any view of Christianity that I hold. It's almost like you wonder, are we, are we talking about the same Christianity? <laughs> right. Um, uh, and a lot of that's because we don't really examine our faith all that much. We sometimes will, uh, even, to, I mean, look, if in the end we were all, if the book we read over and over and over again was not a J. Warner Wallace book, was just just Scripture instead, if the thing we, we spent our entertainment hours on, our discretionary time on, was studying Scripture, well, you know what, in the end, the, 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 the overarching teacher and teaching of Scripture in its context would eventually conform all of us to a very similar way of thinking about all the most important issues. But we don't typically do that. We trust that, hey, whatever we're going to get on church on Sunday is going to be enough. I listen to this podcast where they're not only preaching the Bible, but they do talk about Jesus. That's going to be enough. And it turns out we end up with then a ton of different views of who Jesus is and what he taught. So, so I always think that we make a decision for Christ, right? We all, in order to call ourselves Christians, most of us would say, well, there was a time in which I made a decision that, that I was a sinner in need of repentance, that, I, that Jesus had died in my place, for the sins that I had committed before a holy God, and that his death on the cross, he stood as a substitute for me and the punishment that I deserved. He took that on himself, and I'm going to trust in that act of atonement that he did on the cross so that I can be presented before God blameless, 
the same way that Jesus is before God, blameless. That substitutionary atonement, right? We can only say at some point, I made that decision mm-hmm. that Jesus is my Savior. And for a lot of us, it kind of ends right there. Then we go off and we, we, we don't change even the, our, our daily um, passions for what it is we will consume in terms of information. And so we consume a bunch of stuff that doesn't really matter. And then we find ourselves not really knowing how to, number one, defend what is true about Christianity. And the reason why we can't defend what is true about Christianity is because we hadn't made a decision to even know what is true about Christianity. That second decision to, to study, to, to be approved, to, to know what is true, so we, and to learn how to defend it in front of a culture that even if no other reason that you've got young people, kids in your own family who are watching you to see, is this true? Is this the kind of thing you can even defend? Is this that kind of truth? Or is it kind of like, oh, it works for me kind of truth? Because if it's the second kind of truth, well, then I can find anything that works for me. So the ability, the decision to make a second choice to, to defend what it is we know is true. That's the second decision. And so I think that a lot of us, if we don't make that second choice, it's not as though I think, oh, this is so important to be able to make a defense. No, it's that in order to make the defense, you'd have to know something about what it is you're defending. And it turns out that that's the beauty of it. That's the value. The value is that then we know what is true so well that we can defend it before, not just the world that doesn't believe Christianity is true, but sadly, for those who claim to be part of the church but don't even know what it is Jesus taught. Mm-hmm. I love this quote uh, from this rapid response on your website, coldcasechristianity.com. Uh, you say, if you don't make two decisions, a decision to trust Christ and then to make a case for what you believe about Christ, you're living an abbreviated Christian life. That's yeah, spot that, I mean, on. Well, think about it. I mean, if just if look just from a time perspective, I mean, it, it, you become a Christian in a millisecond when you make the first decision, but then you you spend the rest of your life plumbing the truths of Christianity, which are trans, transformational. I mean, if it's not just, of course, it's that that you could say, well, I, I now know that God is my Father and He exists and He's come to save me, but I'm not going to listen to Him. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to read anything about what He said to me. I'm just going to to trust that basic truth and no more. Well, you, you're, you've abbreviated the entire experience, right? Because it turns out that it's not just the gospel. The gospel, of course, changes everything. But it's God's Word that, on a daily basis, changes your life. And if you're not willing to invest in that, then, then you are abbreviating the entire process by which God makes change. Mm-hmm. Now, if I can put a little uh, opposition your way, uh, yeah. how about this, Jim? I'm, I'm not a pastor. I'm not, I, I'm not a teacher. I, I'm no evangelist. Right. Well, okay. So you, this is, and that's actually a good, a good um, observation because Paul even says this in Ephesians, right? He says, "Some of you have been called to be pastors, and some of you have been called to be teachers, and some of you." But that means that there's a lot of us who, if only some are, that means that some aren't. Yeah. To make a claim that some are infers that some aren't. So, so I could see why, okay, so you're not called to be a pastor. But, but Peter doesn't say that in 1 Peter 3. He doesn't say some of you need to be ready to give a, hope for the, uh, give a reason for the hope you have. He, he doesn't use the some of you. That's, that's missing in Peter's uh, statement in 1 Peter 3. It's in Paul's statement, I think it's in Ephesians 4. Is that right? Anyway. Yeah, it uh, it's in it. yeah so that's, 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 that's in his statement, but it's not in Peter's statement. So that means that, okay, that, that's, that's a, a dictate, that's a command for all of us. So you might say, well, yeah, I'm not, yeah, maybe you're not Billy Graham, so you're not an evangelist, and you're not called to be the next leading pastor in the country, but every single one of us is called to give a reason for the hope we have. 
So because that's not an option, and he, it doesn't, and he doesn't even say that some of you are, that, that means that all of us are, and we need to, to take on that, that. That's the second decision we're talking about, that two-decision choice to be able to defend what it is. Look, it's about being obedient. When you make a decision to trust Christ, it's about obedience. When you make a decision to defend what's true about Christianity, that's about obedience also. So it really comes down to, are we willing to, to do what it is? Are we, are we hypocritical, or do we actually believe that, that what we believe about God comes with uh, certain um, uh, responses that are appropriate because we believe? Like, I don't do this stuff so I can be saved. I don't do this stuff so I can be a super Christian. I just do this stuff because given what's been done for me, how can I do less? And that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. I mean, if you were a, a major football fan, which I know you and your wife Susie love watching college football, but yep. let's say you got upgraded to first class and you sat next to Tom Brady on a flight. I have a feeling, Jim, in the next uh, month, you would figure out a way to weave into practically every conversation you had with the fact you sat next to Tom Brady on a flight. Oh, yeah. I mean, I used to do uh, chapels for the Green Bay Packers. Okay, there and, you go. And so you would spend, I'd spend time talking to people about, you know, that, that are their favorite Packer because I got a chance to meet them all, right? And and so, yeah, I, I totally think that in the end, what it is you are, if you want me to know what it is you love, <laughs> just show me your calendar and show me your checkbook. Right. Or in this case, your statement, you know, your whatever you're debiting. Because it turns out that we only spend time and money on the things that we think are irreplaceable, super valuable. Um, and so the question then becomes, well, what are you spending your time on? So talk is so cheap, right? And that's a, by the way, that's an expression that came from King Solomon, right? It's in Ecclesiastes, that expression we all use. And talk is cheap. I mean, we, we, it's all going to come down to, are we who we say we are? And that's more than making the first proclamation. That's about, are we, like, what do we love? And, and, and Jesus talks about this all the time, right? You know, where to put your treasure, and where we put our, and listen, things have value in your life. I've learned this as an old man. The things that have value in my life are time and money. When you're young, I don't have a lot of money. I was trying to raise my family. So therefore, I was more than willing to trade my time, one thing of value, for money, another thing of value. Now, as you get older, that flips, right? Because you realize you're running out of time. And I don't have the kind of time I had before. Mm-hmm. So now the money is not as important as the time. But these two things are the things of value that God has given us, right? Yeah. And it turns out, if I can tell what you value by how you spend your money and your time. Right. And how readily you uh, are talking to people about things that matter to you. I can picture you yes. at the counter at Arby's and the guy said, do you want fries with that? And you would say, well, let me tell you who likes fries. Tom Brady. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how sad is that that we would actually – how true is it that we are more likely to talk about somebody who's famous we know? I know than the person who is most famous of all. Of all, right? yeah. And I, and I almost wonder if that's because we, we, we are in a place right now where um, Christianity is being vilified within yes. our country. Yeah. I mean, it's, we talked about this last time that we were together, this idea that, that, that really you don't hear the word Christian anymore when it's not attached to Christian nationalist, right? Like, yeah. like that the world wants us to believe that these are two synonymous terms, and, um, and then they're going to try to paint everything they can negatively about Christian nationalism and then say, well, you're a Christian. You clearly are one of those. So I think because we, we have a sense that and, – and I think this is why young people – I said this before with you too, that, that, that the battlefield is now going to be identity. Like do I want to be identified – and again, if I start talking about uh, Tom Brady, then I identify myself as a Tom, Tom Brady fan. The minute I start talking about him, I identify myself. There's no per, uh, pejorative, though, to being identified as a Tom Brady fan. But if I start talking about Jesus, oh, 
well, I've exposed myself, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, mean I, I often wonder how long it will take before these social media platforms just ban the mention of the name. You know, I, I don't want to get weird about it. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Right. I, don't, I, don't, I don't usually overreact that way. But I do have a sense that it's going to be harder and harder for us to proclaim uh, the name of Jesus if people see it as such a desperate negative. Mm-hmm. I had a two-and-a-half-hour conversation with a Catholic seminary student who's being ordained in May, and when I come back from the break, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions and uh, process some of that conversation I had with you. My guest is Jay Warner Wallace. You can go to coldcasechristianity.com to learn more about Jim, and I highly recommend you do. His brand-new book, by the way, is available on Kindle right now for only three ninety-nine. It's called Person of Interest. Check it out. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to the show. My guest is Jay Warner Wallace. Learn more about him at coldcasechristianity.com. So, Jim, I was uh, in a conversation over the weekend with a a seminary student uh, uh, who's going to be ordained as a Catholic priest in May, and I thought it is interesting whenever you look and talk about any religious denomination, there is a combination of uh, Scripture and tradition. So you come from a Mormon uh, family, how do you deal with some of the Mormon traditions? How do you argue those? Well, okay, so so a lot of this was, you know, I, I was the atheist, and so my dad is very much a, a committed non-believer, a committed atheist. He has been most of his, I mean, he might be moving a little bit more toward like a deistic view of of God. It's hard to, it's hard to always know, right? But but I was not raised around anyone who believed anything until my my stepmother uh, married my dad, and then she had six kids with him, and all of them were raised LDS. Mm-hmm. So now suddenly I was surrounded by people who um, were LDS, you know, raised that way. Now, now, so for me, here's how I look at it. Uh, I, I, my, my way in was as an outsider, right? I, I, I always use this analogy. If you're an alien who's flying into Earth and you don't know anything about religion at all on planet Earth, well, you would land there, and really what would you have to go by? Maybe you'd have their texts, you know, the sacred texts of each uh, group that you might read before you landed on planet Earth, but I think you'd be surprised, given the sacred texts of all these groups, how history has kind of changed how we behave within these groups if all you had was the sacred text, you wouldn't probably be able to predict some of the things you're seeing in terms of our behaviors and how we interact with each other, how we even interact with the world, right? Because you'd be shocked to see that traditions develop over the over the years, and and you'd wonder, well, how are those traditions precisely attached to this initial document? Mm-hmm. Well, that was me as as a new believer. I, I didn't have any. Ex- I dropped in the planet on, under the religious landscape as if I was coming from another planet. All I knew was that there were some texts available to me that. I could read to determine if any of these worldviews was number one true, and then how would I express this view? So that means I kind of come in like the, with a very much like a C.S. Lewis mere Christianity view, right? That there are some basics that are taught by Scripture. You have some sense of how Christians would meet and interact with the world around them from the Book of Acts, but beyond that, 
uh, I, I'll be honest, I, I had no interest in whatever tradition mm-hmm. was out there because I, I, it wasn't on the pages of Scripture. I wasn't interested. I needed to know, is this, did this happen in the first century the way it was reported? If you're a Mormon, you need to know, did this happen in all of the centuries that are recorded in the Book of Mormon from about 600 B.C. to about 400 A.D.? There's a history uh, in the Americas that's recorded in the Book of Mormon. For me, I simply need to know, did that stuff happen? Did this stuff happen that's recorded in the New Testament Gospels? If it did, I'm in. And and I'm in in the way that the Scriptures describe me to be in. Now, there may be some traditions that emerge in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries. I'm not interested in those traditions. I'm only interested in the writings of the, of the eyewitnesses. And once I get outside the writings of the eyewitnesses, now I consider Mark writing the story as as told to him by Peter. This mm-hmm. is what the early church claimed. So I, I that's how I look at that. Uh, that's why I, I see it that way. I also look at Luke, who tells us that he is not he's present for the book of Acts, but he's not present for the life of Jesus, and he tells us that, and he ends up um, uh, he says interviewing those people who were servants of the word, who were eyewitnesses of the word. So I see all of these as eyewitness accounts, and that's how I assess them. And if you add me, well, what about this book? What about the books that are between uh, the intertestamental books, you know, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Maccabees, those kinds of books? Well, I, I, okay, look, those aren't eyewitness accounts of Jesus. I'm not interested in those. I'm only interested in what did the eyewitnesses have to say about Jesus. Paul makes a big deal about claiming that he is an eyewitness. And I think he does that for a reason, because he knows that that eyewitness status was incredibly important to the apostles. As a matter of fact, when Judas is replaced by Matthias, Matthias is that is the guy who replaces Judas because, according to Peter in Acts 1, he was somebody who had seen Jesus from the baptism to the resurrection, another eyewitness. So Paul makes a point of saying in 1 Corinthians 15, he, even, even to me, Jesus appeared on the road to Damascus. Why does that matter? Because he's going to write Scripture. And his authority is is established in his eyewitness um, uh, identity. So so for me, I was only interested in that. So so I always tell my my Catholic friends, uh, uh, you know, why am I not a Catholic? Well, because I, I'm I'm not. I, I see no reason to be beholden to the authority outside of the pages of the eyewitness accounts in Scripture. So that's where I kind of lock. Now that's the detective in me too, mm-hmm. right? So if I if I was to find someone thirty years ago who was an eyewitness. Uh, that's that's all that's going to come into trial. I'm not going to be able to take in, you know, 10 years uh, uh, later, somebody had an idea who wasn't really there. Well, th- those don't that those doesn't really impress me. I'm not interested in that. I'm only interested in what the eyewitnesses have to say. So that's been for me where I've kind of – that kind of keeps me out of a lot of the traditions that emerge. Um, I'm not as interested in how, uh, for example, a church father interprets a certain theological position as much as I am in the case for that theological uh, uh, position that is offered on the pages of Scripture. I kind of stay there. I stay, look, can I make a case for this? You know, do I care? It comes down to like, what, what about baptism? What about the triune nature of God? What about a lot of these um, uh, um, ideas that tradition has a lot to say about? Well, I got to figure out what what the eyewitnesses had to say about it, and I will form my own view of what is biblical based on what is in the Bible. Hmm. So interesting. I love this answer. So I got to go back, Jim, to something you just said about an eyewitness that you might even come across from ten years ago or twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. What are your emotions when you find this person? They become available to, for you to question. Are you thinking, 
they're going to remember things well. Uh, I'm going to hear the truth. And how do you ask the right kind of questions to get something that you believe and understand to be accurate? Well, always assume the worst. I would <laughs> have to the, think so. Yeah. You know, you never assume the best. I mean, assume this guy's either lying because why didn't you come forward earlier? Right. Or um, that maybe he's going to tell me a tall tale. And, I, and, you know, look, when people are present for a murder, um, that sticks in your head. There's not every oh. memory is created equal. So, so right. yeah. If I asked you, and I always say this as an analogy. If I if I ask you to tell me what you did for your wife five years ago on Valentine's Day, you might have a hard time remembering. I would have a hard time remembering. But if you ask me what we did on Valentine's Day in 1988, well, that's the day we got married. That Valentine's Day is a memory that's not as it's, it's not created equal. I right. can re- I can recall recall pretty much every hour of that day. And and so that's what happens, right? On these major events, you, everyone can remember where they were when the Twin Towers were attacked. They can remember what TV they were watching when True. they first saw True. that video. They can remember who was standing next to them. Yep. Who Really, if I told you, who was standing next to you while you were watching TV on September uh, 15th, same year? Not You're a not going to be able to tell me. Not a clue. What were you watching? No idea. No idea. Not every memory is created equal. So a lot of times when someone sees something horrific, it sticks in their head. Or they see something that they've never seen before and will probably never see again. Well, you're talking about the kinds of stuff we're seeing on the pages of Scripture. These are things that for those witnesses were never seen before and would never be seen again. And that's the stuff that sticks in your, your mind. So, so what I typically say is when I get a witness, don't trust anyone. Don't trust an eyewitness. Test your eyewitnesses. If you test the eyewitness and he passes or she passes the test, well, then you're good to go. And the test, of course, comes down to those four things I always talk about. Were they really there to see what they said they saw? Can they be corroborated some way, even if it's just by touchpoint corroboration uh, through some other set of ev- evidences? Uh, three, uh, have they changed their story over time? And four, um, do they have some bias or motive that would cause them to lie to you? These are the things that you examine in real eyewitnesses in criminal trials, and so that's the approach I took with the Gospels. That's why I say, for me, my way in was not, well, you know, my my family's all Catholic, so therefore I'm going to look at it through the lens of Catholic tradition, Catholic authority, papal authority. No, that wasn't my way in. And and even with my Mormon family, I I said, well, give me a Book of Mormon. I bought a Book of Mormon. I bought a quad. That's the Book of Mormon, the Doctrines and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. I read through all of the Mormon scripture before I even finished the New Te- uh, the Old Testament. So for me, I wanted to give it a, a fair shake because, hey, if it's true, I'd be joining my family. But the reality of it was is that when you measure it by those four um, uh, measurements you know, uh, that I just talked about, it, it doesn't hold up. It, it's not it, – uh, sadly, um, for me at least because my family is, are, are all Mormons, it's, it's just not true. And then you have to deal with, well, okay, so, so why would I? I don't spend a lot of time in things I know aren't true. Yeah, me neither. And, and so I'm just, I'm done with it. So, so I'll move on to the next thing. But so this, this approach, an evidential approach, not only can lead you to what is true, it can t- keep you from what's false. Yeah. And, and that's the value of it. And that's why I say we have to make a second decision, because it turns out if you don't take that kind of an evidential view where you're, you're able to make a case for something, yeah. th- then you can pretty much believe anything. That's so true. All right. Let me take a break. Uh, Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. Go to coldcasechristianity.com to learn more about Jim. You can also get his uh, person of interest book available for sale on Kindle right now for only three ninety nine. is a fantastic book. I've spent time with it and I love it. And I think you will, too. Let me take a break. I'll be right back with Jay Warner Wallace.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome to the show. If you've missed any of this, I think you're going to want to go to myfaithradio.com. Go to the uh, website, check out the podcast, and make sure you hear it from the beginning. Because when Jim Wallace starts uh, talking, you want to be listening. So he is my guest for the hour. You go to coldcasechristianity.com to learn more about him. He's got a very impressive bio. He's a very smart guy. Always love having him on. He's got a section on his website called Rapid Response. And if you want to do a little brush up on your personal evangelism and apologetics, it's always a great place to go. It's filled with resources, and you should check it out. One of his rapid response questions, and I love this question, is can belief alone save you? Hmm. I'm going to let you rapid response to me. Well, okay. So, what do we mean by belief? That's always the question, right? So, so I think that there's a difference. Um, it's clear that, that that Scripture tells us that the demons believe, yet they're not saved. So, so like, what is this this difference uh, between the kinds of belief that, like, you know me well enough to know that I think that faith is not just a matter of wishful thinking. That instead, um, when we talk about matters of faith, we're talking about a, a, a look. I always tell it this way in terms of juries. Juries are given a bunch of evidence, and we ask them before we start, are you the kind of person that needs to have every question in your mind answered before you can render a verdict? Because if you are, I'm probably going to dismiss you as a juror because there's just no way I can answer every question. I always have questions myself I can't answer. I can't get in the mind of every bad guy I've ever investigated. So, so what we do is we're going to give you enough evidence, though, everything you need to know, even though we're not going to give you everything that could be known. We're going to give you everything you need to know, but not everything that could be known, mm. because there's just no way. This is true for Scripture, too. It's going to give you everything you need to know, but not everything that could be known. So if you are the kind of person is like, you know, I, I really need more. You know, we, we're going to give you enough evidence in a jury trial to bring you point you in the right direction. You'll, you'll know enough to be able to make a decision. And then you got to make the decision. And, and that's just the nature of the kind of work we're talking about. And that step you take across the end of the evidence trail to your decision, that's called a verdict. And the same thing is true for us Christians. We're going to give you – there's more than enough evidence in the pages of Scripture for you to make a decision about who Jesus is. And that step you're going to take across the end of the evidence trail when you still have unanswered questions, because I still do, well, that's every jury trial I've ever investigated. There are unanswered questions, and you still can render a verdict. Same is true here. Now, the difference between the kind of belief – is whether or not I have belief that or belief in. Mm, I love that. Yeah. And so you talk about the idea, typically it's it's talked about in the sense of like, you know, if I I can believe that the plane is going to get me there, but until I get in the plane, I haven't put my faith in the plane. I can believe that it's, 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 um, it's, it's going to get me to the destination, but until I step in it, I have not. I don't believe in the plane, but that step of trust. Now you see this all the time with with, with officers who wear their bulletproof vest, right? They they train. They know it can stop bullets from seeing it stop bullets in the range. We test these things. We go, okay, it's good to go. It can stop bullets. And then you get out in the field, and there's going to be times when you're going to have to trust it. You're going to have to say, hey, you know what? It's going to have to do its job now. And that that's when you move from belief that to belief in that kind of belief, where you are willing to to, to trust a, 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 a claim with your very life. 
is the kind of belief that we are called to have as as Christians, the kind of belief that is different than just believing kind of like the facts of the case. This is about, well, I could render a verdict that might put this guy in jail for the rest of his life. I can believe the facts about Jesus, but until I'm ready to put my trust in him for the rest of my life, well, that's the difference, and that's the step you take. For me, it occurred as I was reading through Scripture. I got to believe that by simply reading what the Scriptures told me about Jesus. I'm like, oh, okay, this this uh, this all checks out. I did my, did my due diligence. Okay, I believe that this occurred in the first century. But in, if you don't think you, – you've got to stop reading the Scripture for what it says about Jesus and start reading it for what it says about you. Well, then you realize you have a need for a Savior. And until you recognize you have a need for a Savior, you're probably not looking for one. But if you do both of these, or you look for what it says about Jesus, and then what it says about you, well, then you're kind of in a position now where you can say, okay, uh, I'm in. I know, I know I have a need for a Savior, and lucky for me, I did the hard work of, of knowing that this is true, of believing it's true on the basis of the evidence, and now I can put my trust in Jesus as Savior. Now, now why is that important? Because it turns out that, that few officers are willing to stand unflinchingly in a gunfight if they don't know evidentially that the vest can stop bullets. And when you see it with your own eyes, now you've got confidence because you've got good reason to believe the vest can do what you've been told it could do. Well, the same thing is true here, especially for young people in a culture that is really kind of coming at us hard, is that if you want our young Christians to stand in this claim as though it is true and to stand unflinchingly when they're going to be challenged on every moral teaching of Jesus, because all of these are coming under attack, mm-hmm. everything from marriage to sexuality to identity, all of these things are coming under attack. If you want our kids to stand unflinchingly, we're going to have to give them reasons, good good evidential reasons, because once you know that the, the best, this, this thing we call Christianity, it can stop bullets, but until you see it, until you know the reason why it can, until you compare it to other worldviews to see that it can, well, then you're not going to trust it and this is this is where we are right now it's it's I almost think sometimes that as christians we kind of think well no it's a matter of sheer will and the more unreasonable the claim the more sheer will it takes to believe it's true and god then um answers that with uh rewards that with salvation right that kind of faith in something that's, that's the most we'd consider unreasonable well that doesn't seem to be what jesus did jesus constantly offered the evidence of his miracles he constantly he spent 40 days with the disciples after the resurrection giving them even more convincing proofs why would you do this if it's just about blind faith like you could just basically i suppose you could come and say i am the messiah i'm not going to do anything to demonstrate that i'm the messiah i'm just going to ask you to believe it that's not what jesus did so i think his view is similar to this in the sense that he knew that if you want to stand tall in what you're about to face my disciples I want to spend the next 40 days with you giving you this kind of assurance by way of evidence that you can stand tall then when someone begins to stone you, because that, that's coming. And if already for you to stand tall in that, you need to know this is evidentially true. Such a great answer, Jim. And I think of your, you can be intellectually persuaded, but maybe not spiritually transformed. So once you put the vest on and you take a bullet, <laughs> you're transformed. You go, this worked. It saved my life. Yeah, and I think that it's not an either-or, right? So I, that most of us who, who work as apologists, um, if I'm honest, we uh, have a tendency to lean too heavily into uh, the kind of the rationale, uh, the rational or the, um, the case for or the evidence for, whatever it may be. 
we have a tendency to um, lean into that a little bit too much. So, so, so we would say that um, you can't trust your feelings. You can't. Well, it turns out it's a, it's a both and. Is that your experience of God is a form of evidence, right? It's direct evidence. You saw it with your own eyes. You experienced it with your own eyes. But you have to test it. Because if you don't test it, it could be – I mean I, most of my Mormon family will tell me they've had an experience that demonstrated to them that Mormonism was true. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so apparently experience is not enough because it has not protected them from, from error. It's tested experiences. It's when you have that emotional experience, when you have that, that experience of your heart, that then you can measure against what you know to be true intellectually. Well, that's when you're in the place that God wants you to be, right? Because we're told to test everything. But you're going to have experiences. Just don't let them be untested. Let's let's spend some time making sure that those experiences are actually what you think they are. And now there's so much emotion attached to virtually everything today. So we're so emotionally driven that if people say, "But well, you know, I I came to faith, but I don't feel saved," uh, I hear that a lot yeah. too. Yeah, well, this is because we we are in a culture right now that has moved the idea of where truth is grounded. It's no longer grounded, sadly, in um, in uh, an objective reality that's outside each of us as a subject. So, in other words, we kind of think of it like you know, it's like your favorite. If you think the best cookie is chocolate chip cookies. That really is grounded in you as the subject who holds that personal subjective opinion. That's why I call those kinds of claims subjective truth claims. And it's true that all of us, we make subjective claims all the time, but that's not the only kind of claim there is. You know, if you said, for example, that, um, that uh, you know, the cure to, uh, to let's say, well, tuberculosis is isoniazid. Okay, great. So the cure to tuberculosis is isoniazid. That's more than a matter of my opinion. That's true for everyone. Even if I don't hold that opinion, even if I would like to try to, re- to, to, to reject that notion, I can't. I don't get to make that true with my own will. That's true objectively because it's grounded in the object called isoniazid, not in me as the subject. So there are also objective claims. But we're in a world right now where that, that, that many people obje- uh, refuse to even acknowledge objective claims. They think that everything can be discovered or determined. Like the truth isn't even discovered anymore. The truth is determined by us as subjects. And if that's the case, then you're going to see all kinds of people who will default to what they're feeling because that, that can be accessed subjectively. Like you, you know what you're feeling. If, 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 but we know that – you hear this expression all the time, right? The facts don't care about your feelings. Well, that, that expression makes sense if, if there's something objective outside of each of us that is factual, that if the train is coming, I can say with all my will that I don't think the train is coming. But I don't get to decide if the train is coming. I better not step on those tracks mm-hmm. unless I know that it's coming objectively. It's, it's grounded in the object called a train, not in the person who's about to get killed by that train who's the subject who's thinking about it. Yeah. I hope I'm not making you talk too much. Do you need to take a sip of vitamin water? <laughs> you know if I take a sip of anything, it's going to be an energy drink. Okay, okay good. So that, All right. I know you've thought about this and written about it a lot. Um, how can you believe the Gospels when they don't seem to agree? But that's because that's why I first got interested in the Gospels. I would not, I would not believe them if they did agree. <laughs> if they agreed word for word, I'd yeah. say, why do we have four copies? Why do we have four different versions? When we say there are four versions of the life of Jesus, that word version is key. Yeah, there are four different versions. Because if four different people wrote about me, if, I, for example, my wife writes about me and my kids write about me, they'll both contain many of the same stories, but from two entirely different perspectives. Mm-hmm. They're going to sound different. And there's going to be places where you're going to go, well, really? Well, why didn't you mention this? He mentioned that. Why is this missing? Well, it's not really a missing. It wasn't just my emphasis. Each of us 
makes decisions. We, we, in real time, we edit. We edit what we're going to say, but we also sometimes will focus in and edit what we're going to see. So I know that witnesses aren't necessarily editing what they're saying to me, but in the time it actually occurred, they may have in real time edited what they chose to see. Now, that's very different, right? Because if I'm focused on the gun, I could miss a bunch of stuff. That's in they get tunnel vision. And then I'm great as far as testifying to the gun, but I can't tell you much of what was happening behind him in the background. Other witnesses are going to be needed for that because we all edit in real time, even as observers. And you'll see this in witnesses all over the place that you talk to. And what, I, what got me to start it in the Gospels is that as I was reading them, for the purpose of mining out the wisdom statements of Jesus, supposed to be a smart guy, right? So I, that's why I was reading the Gospels. But the first thing I noticed is the stories don't line up. The stories don't agree. Perfect. That had, this, to me, uh, a touch of reality. In nice. other words, that's what I would expect if these were true eyewitness accounts. That's why I even bothered to test them. Now, I, what I discovered is no two witnesses ever agree, ever, yeah. ever. Mm-hmm. So if they start to agree, there's probably collusion. Yeah, so if there's uh, five people that witness something and they all gather in a little circle and just say, this is the story we're going to tell, you probably don't trust that, do you? Well, you got to, yeah, I don't trust, well, first of all, you know I'm a jerk, is it? I don't trust anybody. <laughs> anybody. So there's other yeah. reasons why I got other issues, okay, sure. that's yeah. why I won't trust people. But, but yeah, a lot of it is, is you, that's the mechanism by which you, you succeed as a detective. If you trust everybody, no one's going to go to jail. If you trust nobody, somebody's likely to go to jail. And, and that's really what we're, we're doing here, is we are um, doing our best to figure out, okay, how, what, if, just, I'll start off with a, from a glass half empty, and then I'm likely to get to the truth. Mm-hmm. And that's what I tried to do with the Gospels. I started off not believing them, and in the end, um, I, had to be, I had to demonstrate it for my—I I had obstacles I had placed in front of the Gospels, in front of the Gospel message. I had placed these in front of the Gospel message uh, as barriers that I had—I was so skeptical. Mm-hmm. Um, and also pretty prideful and didn't really want anything to be true that would make me less the authority that I, I saw myself as. So that was a lot of it, if mm-hmm. I'm honest with you. Yeah. So Let me take a break. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. When we come back, I've got a question about eternity for him. I know he'll be able to answer it. Go to coldcasechristianity.com. Learn more about him and his brand new book. It's uh, Person of Interest, available right now on Kindle for only $3.99. You want to pick it up. Be right back. We would love for you to share your story about why you love Faith Radio and what has Faith Radio changed the way you think about something or even how you live. We want to hear from you. Your story can encourage others and glorify God. Share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today. Welcome back. Jim Wallace is my guest. And when I say go to the Amazon and pick up his book, I say it because I'm going to speak on behalf of you right now, Jim. He wants you to know that information that's in the book. You know, I don't think you really care if you make a buck on the book or not. I think what you care about is putting this information in front of people so they can know him better. Yeah, I think people, when you say that, they think, oh, sure. But it's really Um, true with you. 
well, but with me, only because I came in in a weird way. I never saw myself as an I'm a pension, I'm a pension detective. I know you are. When I left my job, I left it within a position where I could make choices about what I thought could best build the kingdom. You know, I pastored for a season, church planted, tried to find the things. What what is God calling us to do in this season of life? And if you're if you're discovering things and you want to talk about things, if you want to be a two decision Christian, and you think that's important. Well, then you have to kind of figure out like, well, how do we help the church? How do we help young people, especially? And so, you know, most of my time is spent with, with young people trying to figure out how to help them take a step, and do a better job of. Because I really, I, I mean, I just was got back from Summit Worldview Conference in Colorado Springs. It's in Manatee Springs, but um, it was really, it's, it's. I, I'm, I, I don't. It's like God's in charge, so I don't want to say I'm worried about the church, but I do feel for a whole generation. That is struggling with um, with issues based on the fact that everything seems to be aligned against a Christian worldview, um, and this was probably even as an unbeliever, I never felt that way. You know, as a young guy, I felt like Christians are crazy, but I didn't feel like Christians were hated. And I, and I think for a lot of young Christians today, that that probably is going to be the future they're going to face. So, so I don't look at it in terms of well, here know this information, young Christians, so that you can persuasively um, change the world. I, I look at it like know this information, young Christians, so that you can hold on to the truth because the attack is coming. I like that. All right, let's talk about eternity and the idea and the question: Is hell reasonable? So this is one of those hot topic issues, right? I yeah. mean, a lot of Christians. I are saved it for the end on this. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, you know, I'm I've giving you now. Uh, yeah. So I'm somebody who lands on the side of eternal conscious torment. I do think that that's what Scripture teaches. But I have good, uh, good friends who hold a very different view. They, they they are what they call annihilationists. They they believe that instead of God assigning the the, the those who have rejected Him to an eternity in hell, that they are simply destroyed, annihilated at the second uh, judgment, at the final judgment of, of Christ. So I don't hold that view, but there are many Christians who do. I don't see it as an essential, to be honest. I know that, that can be kind of uh, surprising to some people. I, I hope they're right, because uh, the idea of eternal conscious torment does seem... But again, the, 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 the authority that's being offended here is the ultimate authority in the universe. So if you offend somebody who's, you know, if you, uh, you know, bump into somebody on the street, the penalty you'll pay, uh, uh, on the other hand, if you were to, to, to bump the president of the United States, well, you're probably going to pay a higher penalty for that because it's based on the authority who you've offended. And a lot of that is true for us, too. What I will say is that we have a tendency to have a cultural view of hell that comes from the arts rather than from the pages of Scripture. So we see this fiery torment. We almost see it from, you know, uh, from, from uh, classic books rather than from what is described in Scripture. Surely, certainly the analogy is to this kind of fiery torment, but it's never described as torture. That's a different kind of concept, and I think there will be. I think there's good reason to believe from Scripture, and I've written an article about this as well, that there will be levels of punishment in hell. I think that you see this on the pages of Scripture, different indications that, that, that your unbelieving grandmother is not going to be tormented in the same way that Hitler is tormented. 
sometimes the only torment we're going to face is the eternal separation from God, separation from our loved ones who believe. That would torment a lot of people, but it doesn't mean that you will suffer the exact same kind of punishment any more than if you commit a crime today, you would suffer the same kind of punishment, whether it's a, a petty theft or a murder. The proportionate punishment is something you see both in the Old Testament and you even see in the New Testament. I've written an article about that online in case you want to find that. But the point is, I think that that's, those are two things right away that I think that people don't think about. They, number one, think that everyone receives the same kind of punishment. And number two, that this is somehow torture and that there's a loving God who would torture. No, there's a loving God who will allow you to experience the torment of your bad decisions. That's true. There is a loving God who will let you to do that. Why? Because you have – that. To, 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 to create a world in which love is possible requires us to create, requires God to create a world in which we have free agency, the ability to love freely, because love cannot be offered unless it's uh, offered freely. But that means I have to create a world in which you have the freedom to hate. Now you're stuck because it's logically impossible to create a world in which love is possible, yet hate is not. They're both standing on the shoulders of the same thing, free agency. So God will allow you that free agency, but there will be a consequence then for those kinds of decisions, an appropriate con uh, consequence offered to each person on the basis of who they are. And I do think there will be different kinds of consequences. But by the way, most people who would hate the idea that a loving God would, would, would uh, create hell have somebody in their mind who they think is fit for hell. <laughs> so it's just a matter of, you know, is it my grandmother? Well, okay, it's, it, at the very least, the torment you will experience is the eternal separation from God. Um, and so I think in the end uh, that you have to kind of weigh all of those factors in when you start having discussions about hell. Again, it comes down to defining terms. Right. When someone says hell, what do you mean by hell? Yeah. Well, when you hear terms like uh, thrown into the lake of fire and you think, well, who survives that? Who well, has an awareness is, in that environment? Well, there you go. And that's why a lot of annihilationists will, will say that that is going to result in the total destruction of souls. And and so and, and that's why you have some Christians who I would consider to be part of the Christian family. Uh, that we believe in all the same essentials that are required for us to put our trust in Christ, but there are many places where we're saying, well, we disagree about how you, you interpret this. What's the age of the earth? We have disagreements. What are the end time scenarios? We have disagreements. What's the relationship between God's sovereignty and our free agency? We have disagreements, but those are secondary issues that I'm just not willing to divide over. And so I, even on this notion of what is the nature of that final judgment of those who reject God, I think there are some uh, people I know who make a case for total destruction of souls. They make that case from the scriptures. That's all I can ask. If, if you're going to make your case not from something that some pastor said or from your cultural views, but instead from the pages of scripture, well, then okay. Then we're, it, and even then, there are going to be some places where we disagree, and that's where we don't divide because we're both making the case from the authority of scripture. Mm -hmm. Jim, when we look at grace and mercy and forgiveness— Will we? Do you think we will have an awareness of our sin for a period of time in heaven? I mean, is Peter up there going, I guess I remember Jesus was condemned to die by Pontius Pilate, but I really don't recall denying him three times. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, to be, uh, to be explicit about it, I think, well, there's, there's a parable that's offered by Jesus. Um, and talking about um, the, the fate of those who are separated from God forever, and it does appear that we are not—we know why we've been separated, that we will know that. And I think that's one of the things that keeps us in deep relationship with God, because it's not as though 
I mean, here we kind of know, I know my fallen nature, and the more I know my fallen nature, the more in love I am with a God who would actually bestow the grace upon me to forgive me in that nature. And mm-hmm. to me, it's like, wow. And I think that if I, I, I'm probably going to be in, in, in his presence, knowing even more of the difference between God and myself, knowing even more of the holiness of God, and even more than will love him based on the fact that I, I still remember my fault. I know who I am. I will always know who I am in relationship to a holy God. Yeah. And it's because I know who I am in relationship to a holy God that I, I love him even that much more. Yeah. Because if I meet a 103-year-old World War II veteran with nine Purple Hearts, and I have no idea about World War II or anything about it, how can I appreciate him and his service and what he did fighting for my freedom? I think we'll have actually the same knowledge. Like It's hard to know how much of God's knowledge we will have. We're never going to be God, and if omniscience is part of that, we're never going to be omniscient. But, but I, I think we will have a much better understanding of how history connects, how even the things that we thought were evil in history ended up pushing over dominoes for the glory of God and for something better, more righteous good down, downstream. I think we'll have knowledge of all that. That's going to mean we have to retain a sense of what has happened historically so we can see how glorious God has been and redeeming that going forward. Mm-hmm. What is next on your calendar? Well, you know, I'm doing work with uh, Billy Graham Association, uh, doing these resiliency retreats for law enforcement. And so we've done four. This is our fourth week coming up next this week. Oh, great. And and so we'll be back in Alaska with couples who have uh, suffered through some pretty tr- uh, traumatic either injuries. Uh, some of them hit by cars. Some of them in a uh, shot. Uh, and so these folks, uh, their marriages sometimes are struggle because of that. And we get a chance to go up there and talk about biblical, pers- uh, you know, kind of view of marriage and how important marriage is in God's economy and how you can improve yours. And so that's what we do. And so it's been, I feel like, uh, how did I get involved in this work? I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but I'm so grateful that I'm a small part of that work. And Billy Graham Association, you go to their website at BGE, BGEA and learn more about it. Yeah. And this is week three or four coming up. This is week four. We did two yeah. weeks last week, so oh, cool. last year, so we're six weeks total in so far. Yeah, I appreciate your work. I appreciate everything you do, and I'm looking forward to the next time we get a chance to talk. Jim, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, I'm so glad to be with you, Bill. Yeah, thanks for having appreciate me. appreciate it. Yeah, Jay Warner Wallace has been my guest. Go to coldcasechristianity.com. You can learn more about Jim there and his uh, amazing new offer on his uh, Kindle book, actually about the price of a cup of coffee. You can get that uh, Kindle version of Person of Interest through the end of the month. So check it out at Amazon.com. I highly recommend it. We'll take a break and we'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.